Amen. Let me get my notes here. All of a sudden, my mind goes, I have a lot of babies there. Hallelujah. There must be something in the water. Amen. Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're going to go there in the Word of God. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 6. All right. Amen. You know, I've been thinking about this sermon because it's so different. And, And you're really going to have to put on your thinking caps today and uh, which is kind of ironic considering what I'm about to preach on but I really need you to kind of lock in with me and uh, particularly if you're a parent with the smaller children this is true for everybody but uh, this is especially true with parents who have small children and um, amen hallelujah let me say in the beginning of this sermon I'm not trying to offend anybody Oh, no, 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 no one help me out here. Amen. But uh, the reason being is, you know, you said, well, you've seen this or that. You know, just, I, I just want to help you. Let me begin with a very interesting illustration. I, I, we had Pastor Wacker here with me. He's a very good mind for the Bible. And, and so I was working on this all week long, and, uh, and uh, he was a sounding board but he, he, he told me something that I thought was very, very interesting that I want to begin the sermon with. He was telling about the origin of the YMCA and the Boy Scouts, where they came from and why they came to exist. Both were started by different uh, Christian organizations and uh, denominations in America in the 1800s. And the reason why was that America was shifting from farming to the Industrial Revolution. What that meant for the first time, men, instead of getting up in the morning and going out and working their land for produce and their livestock to live, for the first time, a large amount of men in America were leaving home and actually going to a place of business, a factory, and working, and then at night coming home to their family, And they began to notice something on a large scale. And that was that boys were no longer learning life skills because they no longer went to work with their fathers in the farm or in the ranch or the back 40. And so they were not learning uh, the normal things that boys for generations had learned about living off the land and how to function. And so in the mind of many, this is a crisis. What are we going to do? We're raising young men who have never 
don't know what it is to, to uh, uh, work the field or defense or, or to uh, uh, deal with livestock and, and all these things. And in the mind of those people, uh, you know, we're going to raise a bunch of sissies. We're going to raise a bunch of weak men because uh, they're not learning. And it was because of this giant shift in society that we know as the Industrial Revolution that there was a a group of people who were caught in the middle of this giant shift and they were worried, what's the outcome going to be? And so as a result, they said, we're going to start these organizations which were Christian, the YMCA and the Boy Scouts. And the idea being that we're going to focus and we're going to help these boys who are growing up in this cultural change to learn some life skills. They're going to learn how to uh, tie a knot and and to uh, make barbed wire and uh, all the stuff that all the guys here know, you know. (laughs) Perfect description of what I want to preach on. Because we are living through another major cultural change. A hundred years from now, historians will write about the last 10 years of the, the 1900s to the first 20 years of the, of the millennium in which you and I live, and it will have the same historical perspective of people who lived in the Industrial Revolution. But we are not living in the Industrial Revolution. We are living in the Digital Revolution. And they were able to look at uh, this giant economic shift and realize the children of that era were now going to have an entirely different experience from everything that had gone on before. And I submit to you this morning in this sermon that before our eyes, these precious little babies are going to grow up in a world that their parents didn't know about. And they are going to have an entirely different perspective that their ones, that their parents did. And I'm, I'm tell you where I got inspired. I read a book that I encourage every parent the small children to read. It's called Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids. A man named Nicholas Carderas, this is not a Christian, this is a psychiatrist, but wait, the, the, the evidence is in. And so I want to preach this morning a sermon I called The Glow Kid Generation. And I want to talk to you about the relationship between your children and screens iPhones, iPads. There's not a parent here who hasn't already seen how powerful and how drawn children are to these things. And so I want you to listen to me. I have lots of quotes, lots of facts, lots of material. In fact, I have too much material. If it gets to two o'clock, stop me. (laughs) And um, uh, I thought about putting it on screen as I do in Sunday school, but I I don't want to do that. But you're going to have to pay attention. And and it's kind of funny because I'm talking about how people hooked on screens can't pay attention anymore. How about do this? Put away your phone. Oh, go ahead. You can do it. Matthew 6, 22 and 23. You know, this is the first sermon of the year I preached out of this very passage. But we're going to look at it from an entirely different, actually more practical perspective Jesus said, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, 
what you are looking at is not good. Your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Lord, I ask you to help us this morning, and I particularly am praying for the children of this congregation. God, I pray that you lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. God, help us to be the prudent man who foresees the evil and hides himself and our families. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin to talk about the lamp this morning. Because here the Lord Jesus makes a very powerful observation of the human personality. And if anybody would know humanity, it's our creator. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus makes it clear that the eye is the gate to the soul. The eye is the gate to the soul. Nothing will have impact upon a person as their eye and what we look at. They have a deep effect on us. I was thinking of a couple of, uh, of, of uh, children in our congregation. I was thinking about uh, uh, little Emma Aguilar. This is Pastor and Tiffany Aguilar's uh, youngest daughter. She grows up in a home with uh, four siblings. I was thinking about uh, Colton uh, Mazik, who grows up in a home uh, with uh, three siblings. And it was very interesting that because they had uh, uh, siblings that were not much further in age, but just a year or two ahead of them, how these kids, I've asked around, that they learned to walk, they learned things, and got to, to, to levels maybe sooner than children who don't have that. But just simply sitting there watching their little siblings run around in their brain, that, that, that eye says, you know, I can do that. And a lot of times they tend to start walking and talking sooner because of the siblings. I didn't say the parents are happy about it. I'm just saying that that's what happens. Now, this is just an observation. The Lord Jesus makes a fact, a statement of fact. What you look at animates you. What you see is going to make a difference in you. Uh, it's going to make you full of light. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be bad for you. But nevertheless, it's going to have an impact on you. In this sermon, I'm going to be quoting from some psychiatrists and some neurosurgeons. But I'm not saying this, uh, well, pastor, we preach the word of God. All I'm using them for is that all they are selling me is they're simply reaffirming what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. They may be using uh, experiments and uh, uh, studies and research, but they're not telling me something that Jesus already said 2,000 years ago. I'm using them to help you understand that Jesus wasn't messing around. That your eye and what you look at animates you and has an effect on you and this can be good or it can be bad. I know that I preached the other day about the power of vision out of this very verse that vision animates you. It can stir you. It can build faith and that we have to safeguard our vision. But when you read the Bible, you will find again and again tragic stories that began with the words they saw or they beheld. That before anything ever happened, the eye gate was first of all engaged. Genesis 3, 6. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was desirable to take, make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. The great story of the garden and the fall of man began with the words Eve saw. 
pleasant to the eyes that the eye gate swung wide open and Eve considered something uh, that she was clearly told never to consider, but the eye got involved and she ate the fruit. The Bible tells us that Lot beheld the plains of Jordan. That when he was given a choice, where are you going to relocate your family? He looked down at the Jordan and there in the middle of, the, of this Jordan plain was the city of Sodom and, and he beheld the plains of Sodom. He looked there and the next thing you know, he pitches his tent towards Sodom and the next thing you know, he's at the gate of Sodom and the next thing you know, he's running out of the city fleeing for his life from Sodom and loses two daughters, two sons-in-law and a wife. But it all began with the eye gate. The Bible tells us that Dinah, every teenage girl here, listen to me. It says Dinah went out to see the daughters of the land. That before she ever met Shechem and ended up falling into fornication, which triggered violence because sexual sin and violence go hand in hand. That's why you tell young girls, you don't want to get slapped around by a guy. Don't sleep with him. But this all began when she went out to see the daughters of the land. It began with a fascination. Today it would be more like she was on Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram. Could see what the girls in the world are doing. She saw something and once she began to behold it, guess what? Down the road, it became her reality. One last one, Joshua 7, 21. It's Achan is busted for having stolen uh, the treasure of Jericho, which he was forbidden to do. And now uh, it's all come out uh, and uh, he's confessing. And he said, and, and Joshua said, Achan, what happened? Achan, what happened? Here's the most glorious victory in the history of our nation. We walked around a city seven times and shouted and the walls fell down. 40 year old walls fell down. What happened? And he said, when I saw among the, uh, uh, among the spoils, a beautiful Babylonian garment, some silver and gold. I coveted them and took them. What happened, Achan? I saw it. The eye gate. Jesus said it another way. If you look on a woman to lust, the eye gate. And so what we look at matters. It has an effect. And so let's think then about our cultural shift. Because as I said, we are living through a major shift. We are living through the digital revolution. Historians will see what has happened over the last 25 years or so. And they will call it the digital revolution. When the world changed, because it now affects everybody. Back in the 80s, it affected a few geeks. Uh, and, uh, but for the most part, most of us, you know, when I uh, was young, I mean, here I am sounding like an old man, but I want to tell you, when I turned into an adult, there were only three TV stations. There was no satellite. There was no video. There were no VCRs. There were no cell phones. There were no computers. There were no ATM cards. There were no ATMs. <laughs> Everything was in black and white. Color came in around 1990. I'm just kidding you right there. Some of you, some of you are believing that. And so in my lifetime, since being an adult, the radical shift that many of you that are uh, 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 
in my age group or thereabouts have can say, yeah, life has changed. But what about these babies? They know nothing of that. Many of our children, boot camp, most of the kids in our boot camp were born after the millennium started. Everything's changed. We adjusted to that and we figured it out. I have pastored through when Facebook first came on the scene and retrosexuals, that's what they call people who get online and look up old boyfriends and girlfriends. And, and I saw the devastation and how that, uh, the horrible things that happened and are still happening because people don't want to cut loose their Facebook. And these things, I, 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 we've seen all this and people are making these adjustments. I want to tell you, there's a generation of young people who don't know anything else. They are deeply affected. Okay, a test. You don't believe me? Quick test. Write down the top 10 phone numbers that you call every week. How many could do that? You, no, no, you don't have to. I was just, you know, that's a rhetorical question. Okay, you don't have to. Okay, that's good. A couple of you can. The, the, uh, several hundred of us cannot. I remember my wife's. I think I know my sons and my daughters. That's it. I know the church number. Uh, and I know my number. But the truth is, we can't. You know why we can't? Because the phone number is dad. Wife, mom, boss. That's our number. Why? So smartphones have made us dumb. dumb. Yeah. In other words, technology, when, when the, when the, I, was, I remember when the calculator came out. And, and when the calculator, they told us, you know what, kids are not going to be able to do math anymore. Math is this button plus this button plus this button. They're, they're not going to. And I remember reading about a, a book Raquel gave me on uh, robots. And this guy talked about how the, the best orienteers in the world were in Alaska. They, they, they lived up in this area where because winds would continually blow, uh, you know, their, their landscape constantly shifted because the snowdrifts would change their landscape. And gener- for generations, they had learned to navigate through that, by looking at the stars uh, and by being able to figure out the location of the sun, and they could, they could orient themselves anywhere, but because of navigation technology, the generation has lost it. This generational skill has been lost because these things aren't making us smarter. The writer of this book tells the story what got him thinking in this direction. He said that when he got married, he went on his honeymoon to the island of Crete. He has a Greek a background, and so he said that he wanted to go to this exotic beach that you actually have to hike to get to. And there's this beautiful hotel there, blue water, white sands, and he's out there uh, with his new wife, and he needs to go to the restroom, and he is directed to an underground restroom. He says when you go down there, he describes it, it's underground, it's humid, it stinks, and he's making his way to the, to the restroom there. And as he's making his way, he notices a blue light. And so he turns, and there, just off the restroom, in this little underground, uh, this little underground room, it's humid, it smells, it's right by the bathroom. And there the hotel has the only two computer terminals in the whole area. 
And he says he goes in there and he finds two American boys, uh, uh, heavy set, hot Cheeto eating American boys. And they're there and their faces are glued to the screen playing games. I'm the only bandwidth in the whole area. And in his mind, he's thinking, you know, here's the most beautiful beach in the whole world. And these guys are sitting in this stinky little hole, face glued to the screen, playing their video game. And he went on to say he was there for seven days. And those seven days, those boys never appeared on the beach, never went outside. They stayed there underground. And he listened to his quote. He said, I never forgot the hypnotized expressions of those boys playing in that horrible cellar while paradise was just over their heads. Then he says this, look around you, look at any restaurant that has families with kids, look at any place where kids and teens hang out, what do you see? The head down, glassy-eyed zombification of kids whose faces are illuminated by glowing screens, like the soulless, expressionless people in Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Zombies in the Walking Dead, one by one our young people have fallen victim to the digital plague. I want to talk to you then about glow kids. And I think probably the best thing to say, and I want to make this abundantly clear, your kids are not being educated by your cell phone or their iPad or their computer. Because one of the biggest mistakes that parents make is thinking that my kid's fascination with digital technology is good. That it's educating them. The fact that a child can pick up an iPhone and open it up and is already learning how to move and scroll, that this is somehow, I'm looking at the next Steve Jobs here or the next uh, Bill Gates. And getting parents to understand this is not a good thing. That your son's addiction to video games is not making him smarter. It is not helping him. One of the stories that's heartbreaking, and I don't have time to go, I have so much material here, but one of the stories that's so heartbreaking is uh, uh, some of the things that I've read of of shooters and different, and and when they go to the parents, the parents are befuddled because they said, oh yeah, he was always in his room playing on the computer, but in their mind, I, I would rather have him there than out drinking beer. Well, at least he's not out smoking weed. He's not hanging out with the wrong people. He's online playing a video game, killing people, hanging out with people who play video games to practice killing people. But people, because somehow in our minds, this is good for him. This is helping them. Screen technology is not educational. Screen technology is not advancing your children's ability to learn. It's undermining it. Very interesting. He points out that you go to the top private schools in Silicon Valley. This is where all these digital technology technology comes from. The executives and the folks who actually create all this stuff send their children to private schools that advertise no technology schools. They send their kids to schools and pay top dollar so that they can get a teacher who will write on a chalkboard and give them books to read and does not permit technology. 
He says that if you want to find technology in schools, you'll find it mainly in the poor school districts where these companies, for the name of goodwill, will provide iPads to all the children in these schools and they're running around. My son goes to a school where they have an iPad and, and in their mind, they're really learning. Except the people who are giving that iPad don't want their kids to learn that way. You know, Steve Jobs did not permit his children to have a digital technology. It's not educational. Here's a quote. You've got to listen in. Our brains are simply not designed for the visual hyper-stimulation with which recently developed digital technology bombards us. Okay, that, that our brains are not cut out to have, especially the new high-end digital technology, it has an effect. Now, I want you to listen to this quote here. Okay, I'm not making this stuff up. Go buy the book. He says, perhaps most shocking of all, recent brain imaging studies conclusively show that excessive screen exposure can neurologically damage a young person's developing brain in the same way that cocaine addiction can. That's right. A kid's brain on tech looks like a brain on drugs. Brain imaging research is showing that glowing screens, now this one's going to shock you. Brain imaging research is showing that glowing screens, like those of iPads, are as stimulating to the brain's pleasure center and is able to increase levels of dopamine, that's the primary feel-good neurotransmitter, it has the same level as much as sex does. This effect is what makes screens so addictive for adults but even more so for children with still-developing brains that just aren't equipped to handle that level of stimulation. You know, we, we always joke about people that are always looking up their screens. You know, we always, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you always say, hey, man, every time I see you, you know, hey, uh-uh, what? Uh-uh. that it's so forceful a habit that you, you, you could say, I'm not going to, and then next thing you know, you're, 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 what happened? You, you. And he's saying, they, they look at the brain, they do, they do these studies, they can map the brain and they can see how the brain fires and they say there, there's, there's something happening. It's releasing something. It's touching the pleasure center of the brain. And the reason why people keep doing it is because it's doing something to them. Listen to this. In this book, he talks about Bamsi right over here, where uh, we have one of the finest burn units in all the world. And uh, uh, tragically, soldiers uh, that have been uh, burned in war, he mentions a particular soldier who hit an IED and was burned over 30% of his body. And they brought him here to San Antonio, to Bamsi. And it's such a difficult uh, rehabilitation. Burns are horrible because it's painful. And to rehabilitate them, they have to go through a painful process of moving parts of their body. They don't want to move because it's so painful. But if they don't, then they'll, they'll never move again. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Consequently, these men are fed very powerful painkillers in order to uh, uh, try to help them, but the problem is they get addicted to those painkillers. 
Morphine is highly addictive. And they're like, man, how, how are we going to help these people? And so they've come up with a technology here. And what they do is they put them into a virtual reality. And in this virtual reality, they cover, they, they, they're there. They have this is very cutting edge technology and they're there. And in the virtual reality, they describe the guy, the, the, the patient is in like the North Pole. He's way up in, in, uh, in, the, in the, where it's, it's a complete frozen landscape. And there are penguins that are walking by. And in this VR, he picks up snowballs and he throws them at the penguin. And when he hits a penguin, he gets a score. And they've done this, but they've found that when they are in this VR, the dopamine levels are so powerful that it takes the pain away. And that it works, it's more effective than morphine. And so I say, hey, a soldier who goes and puts his life on the line for our country, do whatever you have to do for him. I do not want to see these poor men come back drug addicts and alcoholics. But the point the psychiatrist makes in the book, that level of dopamine given to a soldier who burned over 30% of his body finds relief. There's something triggered in his brain that releases that. What about a two-year-old who doesn't have any burns on his body? who begins to get so caught up with what's happening on the screen and he starts getting fed, that's kind of effect in his brain. What about him? What will he be when he's five or seven? When he's used to getting that kind of effect on his body. He tells this story of a school teacher who's also a mother. She comes to check in the middle of the night, like all mothers do. She goes to check on her seven-year-old son, and she's absolutely horrified what she found. Instead of him in bed asleep, she found her son sitting in a trance, the iPad next to him. The boy had been playing Minecraft so much, he fell up into a trance, and he was sitting up in his bed, staring wide-eyed, his bloodshot eyes looking into the distance as his glowing iPad lay next to him. The mother, being beside herself with panic, had to shake the boy repeatedly to snap him out of it. A seven-year-old boy who was in a catatonic state. This is a digital generation. And many parents are simply, this is educational, they're learning, this is good. Let me take this a little further with you this morning. Let's talk for a minute about digital addiction. Because anything that triggers a, a dopamine response in your brain, that triggers the feel-good response, you become addicted to that feeling. China says it has 20 million internet addicts. In South Korea, they have opened up 400 tech addiction rehab facilities, and every student, teacher, and parent is given a handbook warning them of the potential danger of screen technology. The director of neuroscience at UCLA calls digital technology electronic cocaine. Chinese doctors call it electronic heroin. Let me tell you this. See, you probably remember we experienced this back in the 1990s when cigarette companies, big tobacco, was sued 
as they began to mine all the data and began to realize that back a, a generation earlier, Big Tobacco figured out how to make their cigarettes addictive. They knew that if they could get people smoking when they were young, that they had created a substance that would guarantee an income for the rest of their lives. My father was born in 1930, told me that when he was in high school in the late 1940s, the cigarette makers would be outside the high school giving away free cigarettes because he knew they knew they could get these kids addicted and they would have them. And indeed, that was true for most of my father's family. My father never smoked or didn't smoke. And I said, Dad, how come you never smoke? Because they cost money, son. That was, that was my dad. I want you to hear me this morning, gamer, parent of gamer, that these games that these kids get fixed on and hooked on are because the people who create these games have created them to create the addiction. They are no different than big tobacco. Just because the media protects them and doesn't come against them. I want to read you a quote. This is straight from the book. Gaming companies will hire the best neurobiologists and neuroscientists to hook up electrodes to the test gamer. If they don't elicit the blood pressure that they shoot for, typically 180 over 120 or 140 within a few minutes of playing, and if they don't show sweating and an increase in their galvanic skin responses, they go back and tweak the game to get the maximum addicting and arousing response that they're looking for. That is a quote from Dr. Andrew Doan, who is head of neuroscience and addiction research for the United States Navy. That when they create these games, you know, we think, oh, my boy, he's a real man. He's out there, you know, on these video games 10 hours a day, uh, you know, and he's at the highest level of uh, Call of Duty or uh, uh, World of Warcraft and all this, you know, and, and, and we think, you know, oh, he's, he's addicted. Anybody who cannot wait to get home so they can get and turn on the, their, their game and play, you're looking at an addiction. One of the things that was really startling to me is the, the creators of these games could care less about the game. Whatever plot line is in your particular game, they could care less. In their mind, it's simply create an addict and guarantee an income. And if it's World of Warcraft or Call of Duty or Angry Birds, it will, as long as it works. You know, the serious gamer would be offended that I'd compare their game to Angry Birds, but that's all they do. That's how they compare it. We got an addict. We're going to create a game where you're going you're to want to get something and get something and get something, and then they tease you with a little payoff. You finally get it. Dopamine tickle, that's what they call it. Get it, boom, and you feel good, and you feel this satisfaction because uh, you, your bird uh, uh, Shot the pigeon, I forgot, whatever they do. And, and oh, I feel so good. And then, then they next level. And there we are again. And uh, running through, rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat. And, and, uh, and oh, and I, man, I'm next level and I move. And now I'm online with uh, 30 other guys. And we're going to form a pack. We're a clan. And, uh, and, and we're running. And, and, and what are we, uh, it's, the mind of the creator has nothing. They don't care. You, you think your game is important. It's not important. 
What's important is they keep tickling you with dopamine and keep you there for the next rush. Say, wow, you sure do not make it sound fun. <laughs> I never heard of this game. Somebody told me. It's called Flappy Bird. Don't laugh like you know you've heard of it. Fla- I'm not serious. How many people have ever heard of Flappy Bird? I never heard of it, thank God. So it says that the Flappy Bird was so addictive, created by this Vietnamese young man, it was so addictive that he took it off the market. He was earning $50,000 a day. But the addiction was so great that out of guilt, he took it off the market. Now, I, I, I read that and something tells me there's more than guilt going on here. But when he took it off the market, people had already downloaded onto their phones, went on eBay, and were offering to sell their phone with the Flappy Bird app for $1,500. The auction went as high as $90,000. Before eBay, eBay will not sell a phone unless it's been uh, brought back to factory, and so they wouldn't permit him to do it. Digital addiction. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would happen if you took away your child's screen? Let's just say, just for a week. Let's just say for a week. You say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to test the theory. And I'm going to say, for a week, my kids, no screens. Ooh, you feel that? <laughs> what if you just said no screens? No, 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 no. You know what we're going to do? We're going to read a book. And you're going to give them the book. And they say, where's the button? And uh, <laughs> just, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, no screens. We're going we're gonna to just go without it for a week. You went out without it for a week. In fact, you went out without it for 20 years. What would you do? What would happen? What would your kid do? Would he act like a drug addict on withdrawals? Many, many, many years ago, I was met with our Bible study leaders way, way back. In our building on Zarzamora, we had this prayer room that looked like a I don't know what we call it. It had carpet on every wall, on the floor, the roof. And I met with our first Bible study leaders. We were the first time we were going to start Bible studies. And I said, you want to be a Bible study leader, no TV. This is 1988. And most people were good. One guy wasn't. And uh, he was, you know, upset. And, and he came around, though. And I'll never forget, a few weeks later, he called me. And I could hear screaming in the background. And he said, Pastor, I want you to know you were right. He said, you hear that? That's my son screaming and crying because we don't have a TV anymore. And he said, we sold it and we bought a washing machine. And he said, where's the TV? So I brought him into the laundry room and I said, there's a TV. 
And he said, and, and he said, I did not realize how addictive it already becomes. It sounds like three years old. What, what, what would happen? Would there be withdrawals? Because it's an addiction? Because you're depriving them of the rush they get when they're looking at that screen. It will be an eye-opener. And then maybe you say, okay, maybe, just maybe, this is not a good idea. I want to close and give you a promise this morning. And that promise, mom and dad, is that you can't affect your children's vision. Jesus said, if the eye is good, if you have a King James Bible, he says, if your eye is single, and if you really look that word up, you'll find it actually means if your eye is simple. In other words, that right now, you know, there are some things about your children's disposition that are there and were there in their womb. But I want to tell you that as a parent, you do control your children's vision. You do have something to say about what they see. You have the ability to simplify things and figure out what they see because what they see is going to affect them. Children need limits and they need boundaries. And it's a responsible parent that says, because I love my son or daughter, I am going to narrow their focus in life. I am not going to. I've had people say, well, if, you know, your kids don't have a TV. How are they going to learn about the world? Well, I don't want them to learn that stuff about the world. There'll be plenty of time when they're adults to make their own choices. But uh, here, my job is to keep their eye simple, single. Psalms 127 says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And he says, you know, your children are like arrows. Mom and dad, you launch them. You have the ability to direct them. You, you're involved in this arena. And don't allow, just because a son or daughter might cry or throw a tantrum because they're suffering the effects of a withdrawal, cause you to yield and give in to them because your job is saying, no, it's not about now, it's about where you end up. Samson and all Nazarites were raised with boundaries. When they asked, how do we raise them? He's not allowed to do this. He's not allowed to do that. He's not allowed to do that. Raise him with boundaries. That does not, listen, it doesn't guarantee outcomes, as we all know with Samson. But the idea is that you raise children and you direct and you control them. You lead them, and this has everything to do with vision. One of the great tragedies in this book was the story of a young man. He, this man, this, uh, the author writes about how he was working at in a relationship with school, uh, school districts. And when they had particularly troubled kids, they would send them to him. And so he was sent to a boy who was constantly truant. And uh, he, they, they said, we've tried. It's very, very difficult. And he describes going, and I'm going to get ready to finish this sermon right here. And I wanted to end it positive, but I'm not. Because this is very sobering stuff. And I want you to walk out of here if you have small children thinking about what I say. He says that he goes to this home, he knocks on the door 
And finally, this woman answers the door and he goes inside. And there's a house. He said it was very odd because this would have happened maybe seven, eight years ago. But it was like walking in the 1970s. Just the house, everything about it was like trapped in a time warp. He sits down with the mother and she begins to describe an 18-year-old son. She says he's up all night playing games. And then sleeps till two in the afternoon. Has no, doesn't talk to her, doesn't deal with her. And uh, she says he refuses to cooperate. He has all kinds of problems. She said that, that she, it's his video. He's hooked on these games. She said, one time I became so angry that I just started trying to destroy the game. And he said, he, he almost killed me. Right about that time, you could hear a movement in that he had left his room and gone in the living room. And he said, I, he went in there to meet him. And he goes, here's this young man. He's sitting, he's 18. And he's sitting in like, a, like an Archie Bunker chair. I don't know. I just lost 90% of you right there, but a, a leisure chair, and he's watching just some mindless television show. There, his mother had already left his eggs and bacon. She's there, you know, has it ready for him. And he's just sitting there, just kind of in a day state. He's trying to talk to him. He's noticing a picture of the same boy a couple of years earlier, pretty strong, the athletic guy, smiling. Two years later, there he is. He's 18, stubble. He weighs about 50 pounds more. You could tell he hasn't been in the sun in a long time. He's trying. This guy just mumbles his answers. He won't respond. And so he says, so I understand that you like to play video games. And immediately, oh, yeah. Well, what game do you play? Well, I play World of Warcraft. Really? You pretty good at it? Oh, yeah. And he starts describing technical things that he does. And it's like it was crazy. It's like all of a sudden the guy comes alive. And then the guy says, would you like to see? And he goes, well, sure. So they go to this room, they open this door, and there are three giant flat screens. He said, it looked like you were in a control tower in, in an airport. There was this complicated gaming system. He sits down on this chair. He begins to now speak very fast, and he's talking as he powers up everything. And the next thing you know, they're in the middle of this incredible action and this guy starts describing what he's doing and, and now I'm going to do this and now he's, he's going to pull off this very technical move and he's going and, and, uh, and uh, just you know it's just totally and then after a few minutes you know the guy you know kind of powers down turns off the machine and as they walk out it's like he, he walk, he's in the room he's like this and then as he walks he goes back sits on this leisure chair back into a catatonic state just mumbling 18-year-old boy. A mother who lives in fear of him now. All she does is provide his food. I'm going to tell you, the time to deal with it is when they're two. Adam Lanza, whole chapter on Adam Lanza. Newton, Newtown, Connecticut. Shot his mother, then went down to the school and shot a bunch of kindergartners. We all know the story. Adam Lanza, that was his life. He lived in the basement, a divorced family, a mother who wanted to make sure her son didn't leave to her father, so she indulged everything he ever wanted. He couldn't buy guns, so she joined a gun club, got her permit to buy guns to give to him, to connect and bond with her son. They said that Adam Lanza in the basement of his, uh, of his uh, room 
had an eight-foot poster. And on it, the names of every mass killer, their name and how many kills. He kept score. They, in fact, the, the, the writer says the research that he did on mass killing was a Ph.D.-level research. He had it for two years. Online, Adam Lanza had killed over 80,000 people online in his games. He kept track. And that he chose the school not because of some terrible thing that happened in his childhood. He chose the school because he was trying to break the record. And he figured a school with small children, you can, mass, you can increase mass a lot faster. Horrible. Horrible. You say, did screen addiction do it to him? No. But screen addiction certainly fed it. I could talk to you about psychotropic drugs. I could talk to you about children of divorce. But I could also talk to you about the power of screens and what animates you. Let's bow our heads. You know, the truth is that there's far more things I could have said, but I, I can't go on. I think you get it. Very sobering message. But I'm telling you, when you look at these precious little babies and the world they're going to grow up in, I don't think it's irresponsible to warn every parent. Wow. What are my children's relationship going to be to this new generation, that this digital revolu uh, revolution? How am I going to help them? How am I going to raise them with that awareness and give them the proper balance and tools to function in society? So all our heads are bowed, and I know this is church. You may have felt like you just sat through a seminar. But Jesus Christ said, if your eye is single, it will be full of light. He said, but if your eye is bad, it will be full of darkness. And he said, what's worse is when the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The worst thing that can happen to a person is false light false light, to think you have light when in fact it's darkness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for sinners. The light of the gospel is that we are all sinners, every last one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what religion you are. Every single one of us are sinners in need of forgiveness. The Bible says a light is dawn. Jesus Christ, God's son, came to the earth, lived a perfect, holy life, did nothing wrong, and yet was taken and crucified on a cross. The Bible says that he allowed that to happen because he took on himself all of our sin. The innocent one died for the guilty. And three days later, he rose from the dead, and he has power to forgive sin. He has power to change people's lives. That's the simple gospel truth. That's not hard to understand. It's a simple light. And when men and women gaze upon that light and embrace that truth, powerful, powerful things happen.
You don't become a Christian by joining a church. You don't become a Christian because your parents are Christian. When you personally come to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I confess. But I believe you died for me and you rose from the dead. And Lord, I choose to follow you. He can change your life. And while our heads are bowed and we're before God, Christians are praying. If you're here and you're not right with God and you want to be saved, I'm going to ask you to do something right now just to lift your hand. And by raising your hand, you're saying, pray for me, Pastor. I'm not right with God. I need Jesus Christ to come into my life. I need forgiveness of sin. I need Jesus. If that's you, I'd like you to just raise your hand right now. Put it up high where I can see it. Hold it there just for a minute. Amen. God blessed his hand. Thank you. Who else? With an uplifted hand. I'm not right with God. Amen. The blood of Jesus cleanses. God bless you. Thank you. Who else? Pastor, I need forgiveness. I need Jesus. God bless you. Who else? With an uplifted hand. Pray for me. I'm not right with God. He loves you this morning. It's a simple truth. He can change your life. Anybody else? Slip up your hand. Maybe you're backslidden. Say, Pastor, I need Christ tonight. I'm, I, I'm not right with God. I used to walk with God. But I'm not right with God. Here's my hand. Lift it up. Oh, before we do anything else, lift up your hand. Anybody else? These hands have gone up. Are there any others? Here's my hand. Pray for me. Amen. While our heads are bowed, would you respond with an uplifted hand? Praise the Lord. All right. I want these that lifted your hand to lift your head. Just look at me just for a minute. Just lift your head. Look at me just for a minute. You lifted your hand. I want you to just look at me. Amen. If you lifted your hand, I want to invite you to come down to an altar. And pray and let Jesus Christ touch you. Just ask you to stand up right now where you are. Let Jesus come and touch you and minister to you this evening. Thank God. Thank God. Praise the Lord. I want you to come. Don't be embarrassed. I want you to come. Thank you. Would you come? Amen. Thank you. Anybody else? Amen. I need a sister to help us tonight, today. Praise God. Amen. Would you come? Amen. Thank you. Amen. Are there others? Just get out of your seat. Say, Pastor, I need to get my heart right with God. 